We've come as far as the books of Kings now in our study through the Bible. Wonderful books, so many great lessons that we can learn. A lot of the lessons we learn are from seeing the mistakes that they made, uh, some of the characters and individuals and the nation of Israel as a whole, and how we can learn from their mistakes so we don't repeat those things. Paul says that everything that was written aforetime was written for our learning. You know, and these examples are here so that we don't fall down the same holes and things that they did. Um, so there's lots of great things. These are great books, so packed full of uh, the history. Um, but again, so many practical applications that we can see as we go through. So uh, before we turn to Scripture, let's just bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and powerful. Father, we thank you that it does instruct us. And that these historical accounts that we have, Lord, going back now... Two and a half thousand years and more. Speak to us today, Lord, as if these events were, were just happening, Lord. And the lessons that we can learn are so applicable for our daily lives. So, Father, help us to have ears that are open, hearts that are ready to receive. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit this morning to teach us, to convict us, and to lead us further in our walk with you. Father, we just again thank you for your precious word. And Lord, just give us a greater desire each day to read it, to study, and just to spend time before the throne as you speak to us and teach us from it. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have we, as we've noted over the last couple of weeks, we've gone through um, the book of First and Second Samuel. Um, and they're part of uh, six books, as we have them in the English Bible, which really deal with this kind of pre-exile history, uh, looking at the, the nation finally getting to the status of having their own monarchy, uh, and then the subsequent issues that come as a result of that. And then we'll conclude next week this section as we look in the books of Chronicles. Um, but this morning, Kings. Incredible. Uh, as I said a moment ago, Chuck Misler, uh, in his study through these books, uh, certainly for First Kings, he subtitles it, Discontinuance Through Disobedience. And we just see, in a sense, a downward spiral of the nation. You know, the nation, in a spiritual sense, reaches a real peak with David, and things start to get worse from that point on, as we'll see this morning. We're going to see in the, the first 11 chapters of First Kings, really the life of Solomon now is going to be laid before us. Solomon reigns for 40 years, and we're going to see his uh, accession to the throne, uh, the temple being built, one of the major things that, that Solomon accomplishes during his reign. And really that takes the nation to a, a whole new level in the kind of the global uh, scheme of things, um, the, right at the height of their fame and glory as a nation. But then from there we see this declension and this decrease as things go um, worse or get worse and worse from this point. Um, we then get to Solomon's son Rehoboam and the kingdom at this point divides and we'll go through this and look in a moment. But that takes us then from chapters 12 through to 22. Um, to bring us to the end of First Kings. Uh, and we see again Rehoboam, and then the kings of the southern kingdom, referred to as Judah, and the kings of the northern kingdom, referred to as Israel. And during this time, we're going to meet a number of prophets. Um, the prophet Elijah uh, is the prophet that we're going to talk a little bit about this morning uh, on, in passing. He's a prophet really to the, uh, northern, king- sorry, yes, the northern kingdom of Israel. And we see God sends his prophets to speak to the nation, to try and turn their hearts back to him, just as the judges had done prior to this. God always sends people to speak to the nation, to turn their hearts around. Elijah, incredible character, we'll 
today, talk more in a moment. When we get into Second Kings, well, the first ten chapters, really, it's just the annuals of Israel, the northern kingdom, just going through these things. And it takes us from the ministry of Elisha. So this is the prophet that follows on uh, from Elijah. He was very much Elijah's disciple. Elisha carries on this work, um, and that takes us to the death of Jehu, who was Israel's tenth king. Uh, we'll see these in, in a little while. Um, and then the next chapters, from chapter 11 through to 17 of Second Kings, we get alternating annuals of both kingdoms. So we get a little bit speaking about the northern kingdom and a little bit speaking about the southern kingdom. And it can get quite confusing if you're not sure which kingdom you're looking at. So it's worth going through and maybe kind of marking yourself so you know which kingdom uh, the kings that are being spoken of uh, are referring to. But during these, the time that we find that Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and so on had their ministries. Um, so these prophets that we're aware of and familiar with, the minor prophets typically we speak of, um, when we get to those books we'll look at what they had to say. Um, but it was during this time that they were prophesying to the nation. Well, that ends with the Assyrian captivity of Israel, the northern kingdom, in 722. And then we find that the focus then obviously shifts to Judah, uh, all that's left by this point, the southern kingdom. And the remainder of the book takes us from chapter 18 through to 25. And that's when we have the prophets uh, Obadiah, Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah, all during that period of time prophesying to the nation. And that will then take us up to the conclusion uh, of the the kingdom in the land at this point with the Babylonian captivity as Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon will come and take the kingdom uh, and uh, by force and uh, really puts an end to the monarchy in Israel as we know it at this time and the, since this time Israel has gone for many days without a king just as we'll see when we get to the minor prophets that had been prophesied and uh, this is exactly the case and of course we're still in this situation now waiting for the next king of Israel to rightly take up the throne, of course, Jesus Christ, who will sit on the throne of David. So that's kind of the, the a summary of what we're going to be looking at. If we just go through then in a little bit more detail. So look at First uh, Kings to start with. David is now old. Okay, so we've been looking through Samuel. Samuel really gives us first and second the the story of David's life, um, but he's now at the end of his life. He's old. Um, Adonijah, one of his sons, decides he's going to appoint himself to be the next king. Without David's blessing, without David's approval. But Joab, who'd been the commander-in-chief of David's armies, uh, is the one that supports Adonijah and gives him, in a sense, the go-ahead to go and do this. Well, Nathan, if you remember the prophet, and Bathsheba, David's wife, by this time had been the wife of Uriah, obviously hear about this. They're concerned because they realize that if Adonijah takes the throne, then it could really put not just their own lives, but also Solomon's life in jeopardy because it had already been said that Solomon was going to be the king. And so they go and they petition David and say, did you know that Adonijah has set himself up as king? Well, David responds and officially appoints Solomon as the king. And the way he does this is a number of different things, but he sends Solomon to ride on David's mule uh, to go through the streets of Jerusalem. Now, that's quite a common practice in this time. When a king was being appointed, and when a king was coming in peace, they would ride on a mule or, or so on. If they were in a wartime situation, they would come on a horse. Now, that's interesting for us because on Palm Sunday, our king rode into Jerusalem on a mule, a donkey, effectively. Uh, this is how he comes in, because he's coming with this message of peace, this message of reconciliation uh, that was going to come about through his own sacrifice. When Jesus comes back at the second coming, he'll come on a horse, because he's coming in war to judge. 
and so on. So we just see a, a kind of a, a, an element of these things played out through Scripture. Um, but then Adonijah's supporters flee as they realize that, that David has now sanctioned Solomon as king uh, and there's a number that are, are siding with Solomon. So straight away Adonijah and his supporters flee but Adonijah himself is spared at this particular point. Well, we go into the second chapter of Kings. Solomon is charged by David regarding his primary responsibility. David says to him a couple of things. Specifically, that he's to be strong. He's going to lead this nation. And Solomon is only a young man. Some commentators think between about 15 and 17 years old uh, is the time. I think Josephus reckons I think about 15 years old um, that Solomon was when he became king. So just a young man. And David urges him to walk in God's ways. We have this statement in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, where David says to Solomon, Keep his, i.e. God's, statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies, and is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself. You know, that is the recipe for success, if you like. You know, if you want to prosper in all that you do and wherever you go, it's quite simple. Keep God's statutes, keep his commandments, keep his judgments, keep his testimonies as it's written in the law. You know, God has given us everything we need in his word. And if we simply keep to the word of God, if we use that as our framework and our basis for life, well, then we'll prosper because God will be directing our paths anyway. But David here making it very clear that this was to be Solomon's number one priority and responsibility. But at this point, Solomon is also charged by David with some housekeeping tasks, if you like. Firstly, it's deal with Joab. Joab, this commander of David's armies, had been with David throughout and so on. But if you remember, Joab had done a number of things. One of them was that he'd killed Abner. Abner had been Saul's commander-in-chief. And Abner had effectively um, uh, sided with David after a while and said to David, look, you know, you are the one that God has appointed and anointed to be king. And so Abner follows David and the whole kingdom is united there under David. And Abner has a big part to play in that. But then Joab ends up killing Abner because Abner had previously in a battle situation killed Joab's brother. Well, the whole nation was destroyed about this. David was particularly upset. And so he's now says to Solomon, I want you to sort that one out. Deal with that one. Um, but also, Joab now is effectively guilty of treason um, by going against David and trying to set up Adonijah as king. But David also says to Solomon, show kindness to uh, Brazilii. This uh, individual blessed David and, David and supported David when David was fleeing from Absalom. And Solomon says, remember him. He was good to me. But then also deal with uh, Shimei. There's another individual who cursed David when David fled from Absalom. And on that occasion, David did nothing. But David now says to Solomon, you deal with that one. Well, as it goes on, we find that Adonijah then commits treason. And actually, as a result of that, he is then put to death. Abithar, the priest is removed from office. He'd supported Adonijah. And that is First uh, Kings 2.27, we're told, to fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. You remember Eli and his sons were wicked and so on. Well, Abithar, it turns out, was a descendant um, of Eli. And so, as God had promised that Eli's lineage and dynasty would, would come to an end, so here he's removed from office, and the word of God reminds us that this is God being consistent, uh, fulfilling his word as he said he would do. Joab also is then ki- killed for this act of treason, and also on account of that which he'd done um, 
before, as we just mentioned. So uh, Shimei is also put under house arrest. He's told if he stays in Jerusalem, he'll be okay. Well, he decides he's going to get up and go. As a result of that, he's also put to death. And so finally, after these things are dealt with, the kingdom is established and Solomon is now king of the nation. But then, first things, first Kings chapter 3, we don't get very far before we find Solomon's first mistake. Moses, back in Deuteronomy, had warned that any king should not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses, for as much as the Lord has said unto you, you shall henceforth, henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Well, almost every single one of these counts, Solomon fails. Moses had given this warning for future kings of the nation. And incredibly, Solomon goes against every single one of these things. Well, the first thing we find is he makes an alliance with the king of Egypt, with Pharaoh, and he takes Pharaoh's daughter as his wife. And of course, as we see, as it had been uh, warned by Moses, what happens is the Pharaoh's daughter starts to pull Solomon's heart away from the things of God. Nevertheless, we are told in the early stages of Solomon's life, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of David, his father. So there was a lot of good things that could be said about Solomon in the early stages of his life. And as a result of this, we read in 1 Kings 3, picking up verse 5, In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask, what shall I give thee? And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him, a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or to come in, and thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart, to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast uh, asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked thy life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment, behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither, uh, neither after thee shall any rise like unto thee. And I have given thee uh, that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honour, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. So this incredible situation that Solomon asked for wisdom, God grants this incredible wisdom. Now, I do find it interesting that Solomon, as we know, ends up going off the rails and these other wives and so on, pull his heart from God. And yet we're told he's the wisest man that ever lived. How can those two be reconciled? Well, quite simple. We don't put any trust in the flesh. If the wisest man that ever lived can make those mistakes, well, then you can be sure that we can make those mistakes. And none of us should ever be so arrogant as to think that we've got it sorted, that we're above temptation, that we won't get led astray or pulled away. That's why we need the Holy Spirit every day to be with us, speaking to us. We need to be in that continual relationship with the Holy Spirit where we allow him to direct us and lead us. 
Because it's so easy for us to get ensnared. The sin that, as the book of Hebrews reminds us, so easily ensnares us. Well, Solomon, one of his greatest uh, accomplishments was to build the temple. And 1 Kings chapter 5-7 through seven really deal with that. David wanted to build the temple. Uh, we read about that in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. One of those great chapters, as you remember, we mentioned last time. One of the key, pivotal chapters in scripture. But God has said that David wasn't going to build it. David had shed much blood and so on. So um, God has said, you're not going to do it, but your son will do it. So Solomon is now the one that begins this work. And he obtained cedars from Lebanon because the quality of them was so good. David also had a very close relationship with Hiram, the king of um, Lebanon at this point. So Solomon then built his workforce, 183,300 uh, individuals that are involved in this project, a major national project. There's 30,000 men, there's 10,000 per month in these three shifts that will be involved in the work and the building of the, the temple itself. In addition to that, there were 70,000 carriers, those that would be bringing the wood. Typically they would float the cedars down uh, the coast of the Mediterranean from Lebanon down to Israel and then they'd bring them inland to where the temple area was there was 80,000 hewers in the mountains so these are people that are out there chopping down the the cedars of Lebanon and uh, bringing them to the to the coast and so on and there's also 3,300 supervisors overseeing this work Um, so it's a really major project now that's a a rendering of what the temple would have looked like Um, you've got these pillars at the front these pillars didn't actually support anything uh, named Yakan and Boaz uh, the names given to these two pillars Um, and the temple down the side here we'll look at this in a moment but there were storerooms where the priests would typically put their uh, bits and pieces and so on Uh, there was various altars and uh, there was this um, Molten Sea, we'll talk about that in a moment, and there was all the other parts and paraphernalia. You see, what the temple was, was a larger scale version of the tabernacle. And yet we need to remember there were some differences, and God had given David the instructions. Now, this is very interesting for us. If we look at the, the kind of a, an aerial view or schematic of the um, temple itself, at the top here where the mercy seat would have been, uh, this is where the Ark of the Covenant lived. Uh, this is the Holy of Holies. And it would only be once a year that the priest, the high priest, would go into uh, this place. Then we'd have this part, just as it had been in the tabernacle, the holy place, uh, we'd have the table of showbread where the bread, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes, the altar of incense would also be in here, and the lampstand. Now, in Solomon's temple, rather than just one menorah, they had ten lampstands uh, that were there, uh, which is interesting in itself. And we'll mention that in just a moment. There's the porch area also here, and then these two pillars um, that didn't actually support anything. Uh, then there was an altar uh, that was used. They had, rather than just one laver, uh, they had these ten bronze lavers, uh, and then this big molten sea. Typically, these would have been used for washing and cleansing of the priest for the work of ministry, uh, and so on. And you can see the various parts with the outer court outside, all of that. Now, Seven times in the New Testament, and number seven should get our attention for a start, we're told that we are the temple of God. It's not just a, you know, there's some ideas here, you're like the temple. We're told you are the temple of God, that God dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. And it's interesting because this appears to hold the key to, if you like, our makeup, our software, um, our architecture, if you like, our heart, soul, spirit and mind, all uh, encompassed in these things. Chuck Misler and Nancy Misler have written a number of books that go through these things. Um, But very much the Holy of Holies is like our spirit. 
the holy place like our heart the porch area our willpower and so on and again we get a choice as to kind of what goes in and out and so on um, but our soul and body again represented by all of these things it's a very interesting study to start to look at how the temple speaks of our own lives in many different ways but there's also the suggestion that these storehouses around the side here are very much like our subconscious. And it's the things that we put in there that we may not think will cause us any problems whatsoever, but can actually be problems, things that later down the road uh, will cause us issues and so on. Typically with the, the temple itself, the priest ended up storing their own personal idols in these little storehouses. So even though this is right next to the dwelling of God in their midst, for us, the Holy Spirit dwelling in our life, it's very easy to have these, these idols, these things that we will allow into our lives. Do we think, well, that's not going to cause a problem? Um, but so often it does. One other thing, and we haven't got time to go through all of these things in detail, I encourage you to, to get into this, to study. There's lots of uh, material available. And obviously scripture itself is a great place to start to read through some of the details and see the typology. But there's another interesting facet with the temple. And that is if if you were to just lay these pillars out, you have what would almost seem to represent a human form. And again, we're told from scripture that we're created in God's image. And there's lots of things here that we can uh, draw analogies to. For a start, the lights are supposed to be in the holy place. Now, if that's analogous to our heart, again, using the um, Chuck Misler's um, breakdown and his understanding of these things and, and so on, that within our heart there should be light. There shouldn't be that darkness. You know, light makes manifest, we're told. And in our heart there shouldn't be hidden things, things that we're trying to conceal. But it should be light, it should be open um, to God and so on. And there's lots of other things. It's interesting that the legs... Um, um, Boaz it, it means strength and so on. It, the, these legs don't support anything in the temple. And I think that's interesting too because actually our lives aren't supported by our own strength. They're supported by God. You know, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, not through our own ability, not through our own ingenuity or anything that we have of ourselves. And I think it's interesting in this kind of uh, layout that the legs don't actually support the body. And our lives are not supported by our own ability. It's interesting that we have these, these five lavers, uh, almost seem to be like fingers. Um, and we have also, um, at the bottom end, we have like the toes um, with the other bits and pieces here. So there's lots of similarities um, that you can draw. I'll leave you to take it further and study that. Um, but lots of uh, very interesting thoughts as you start to look at the fact that God says that we are the temple and you start to see God's design through all of these wonderful things. I just want to read you something from Charles Spurgeon. He quotes from Zechariah 6.13. There the scripture reads, He shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory. Speaking of the Messiah. And he says, Spurgeon says, Christ himself is the builder of his spiritual temple and he has built it on the mountains of his unchangeable affection. His omnipotent grace and his infallible truthfulness. But as it was in Solomon's temple, so in this, the materials need making ready. So just as we've mentioned a moment ago that we had all these workmen involved in getting the materials ready and so on. Well, we are part of this temple as well. We're this building that's being built together. We're living stones, um, we're told as well. That we're being fitted together uh, into this building for God's glory. Spurgeon carries on, he says, There are the cedars of Lebanon, but they are not framed for the building. They are not cut down and shaped and made into those planks of cedar. 
whose odiferous beauty shall make glad the courts of the Lord's house in paradise. There are also the rough stones still in the quarry, and they must be hewn thence and squared. All this is Christ's own work. Each individual believer is being prepared and polished and made ready for his place in the temple. But Christ's own hand performs the preparation work. Afflictions cannot sanctify, excepting as they are used by him to this end. Our prayers and efforts cannot make us ready for heaven, apart from the hand of Jesus, who fashions our hearts aright. As in the building of Solomon's temple, there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house, because all was brought, uh, brought perfectly ready for the exact spot it was to occupy. So it is with the temple which Jesus builds, the making ready is all done on earth. I love that because, as Spurgeon alludes to there, they didn't do any of the shaping of the bricks and the blocks of uh, granite and so on. All of those things were done prior to them being taken to the temple mount. And then everything is literally slotted into place. And so it is with us that God is doing that work of making us what he wants us to be now. And some of the trials, some of the things we go through. We've said this before, we've used this example. You know, If you had the option of God's plan for your life or your plan for your life, what would you choose? You see, I, I, I saw a great... Um, um, cartoon type thing the other day and it was a, a picture of uh, a character cycling a bike on a nice very gradual incline and it was my plan for my life and then there was a picture of this really hilly rocky terrain and this cyclist kind of looking you know a bit perspiring and so on and it was God's plan for my life you know but that's it you see if we plan our own lives it'll be very easy going and so on but God gets us ready for the things that he knows we're going to need to go through and to experience to make us what he wants us to be just so that we fit perfectly I think that's a very good thing okay now you're aware of course that there are a number of contradictions in the Bible not we're told this of course we hear it so frequently that there's errors in the Bible and so on well now this is one that's sometimes highlighted in 1 Kings chapter 7, part of the things that Solomon was making was this molten sea. A big kind of bath, in a sense, that the priest could bathe in. And we're told he made a molten sea ten cubits from the one brim to the other. Okay, so that's the diameter. And it was round all about, and its height was five cubits, and a line of thirty cubits did compass it round about. Okay, so... If we look at that, um, first of all, again, 10 cubits, we're told, is the diameter, and 30 cubits is the circumference, as it's given there. Well, in terms of scale, that's the type of size this thing would have been, so it would have been a rather large object. Now, diameter, fine, 10 cubits, but how can we say the circumference is 30 cubits? Because if you remember from school, the circumference is pi times the diameter, and I'm sure you remember that pi is 3.145926535897, yeah? So actually, this is what some critics and things will say is an error. Because what it's saying is that the circumference is three times the diameter, when in actual fact, it's 3.14 times the diameter. So they say there's a mistake. Well, some people say, well, it's an approximation, and we'll leave it there and move on. However, if we look at the Hebrew text um, for this particular verse, the word for circumference uh, is misspelt. In the original text, it's this. It's, the word is this uh, keviv there. That's, uh, there. Um, well, the scribes, because they respected the word of God, they would never change something. But if they found something they thought was in error or they didn't understand, they put a note in the margin. And so the scribes have done this. They put a note in the margin of the word that they think it should have been the correct word in the context here. Now, the difference is uh, we've got 
these words, um, the, the incorrect spelling, uh, we have um, this kof the letter, in the Hebrew letter, uh, then a vav, and then the incorrect one has a he there, uh, similar to our, our letter H. The, uh, the correct spelling just has this kof and a vav, there's two letters. So we have this hey. Uh, now, hey, this, this letter in Scripture is often seen as the breath of God. We see it in the name of Abraham. We have Abraham. God, in a sense, kind of gives him this new life, breathes on him as such. It becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. So there's this breath of God. It's seen on a number of occasions through Scripture. So there's this subtle hint that there might be something more here. Well, every Hebrew letter also has an equivalent number value. So the first letter in Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, is one. Bet is two. And by the way, that's where we get our word alphabet from. Aleph, bet. It comes from the Hebrew uh, letters. Aleph, bet, alphabet. Um, so as we go through the Hebrew letters, uh, getting to tell uh, the last letter in the Hebrew language, and then in Hebrew, the last letters, if, if a letter is at the end of a word, it has a slightly different form and so on. So we have a whole array of numbers that we can kind of use for, for mathematics purposes and so on. Well, if we look at the, the two words in question, so we've got the one that's actually in the text, and then we've got the one that's been the, noted in the margin as the correction, what it should be, and we look at the values um, for the, uh, the, the kethif, the, the one that's in the text, let's say we have the koth, uh, uh, vav and the hey, um, so that combined gives us 111 numerical value. This other one, the marginal uh, one that's been noted, has a value of 106. What do you do with that? Well, if you divide 106 by 111, these two numbers that we have, multiply by 3, which we're told in the text was the circumference, we actually get pi. Now, if you then pi times the, the diameter, this 10, uh, the, the diameter we have, you get exactly the right measurement. It's incredible. You actually come to an error of less than 15 thousandths of an inch in a circumference of over 46 feet. Now, I'll let you do what you will with that, but it's there. And you can't change the fact that it's there. So when people start to say there's errors in the Bible, rejoice, because there's a great discovery that's about to be made. And uh, there's so many of these that we can highlight through the scriptures we go. But let's move on. So, First Kings chapter 8. Then spoke Solomon. The Lord said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have surely built thee a house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel, and all the congregation of Israel stood. And he said, and, uh, he said Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spoke with his mouth unto David my father, and hath with his hand fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be therein. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. And it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said unto David my father, Whereas it was in thine heart to build a house unto my name, thou didst well that it was in thine heart. Nevertheless, thou shalt not build the house, but thy son that shall come forth out of thy loins, he shall build the house unto my name. So this is what we've just said already. And the Lord has performed his word, that he spoke, and I am risen up in the room of David my father, and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And I have set there a place for the ark, wherein is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord, in the presence of all the congregation of Israel, and spread forth his hands toward heaven. 
And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath, who keeps covenant and mercy with thy servants, that walk before thee with all their heart, who has kept with thy servant David, my father, that thou promised him. Thou spokest also with thy mouth, and hast fulfilled it with thine hand as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father that thou promised him, saying that there shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, and they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray pray thee, be verified, which thou speakest unto thy servant David my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded? Yet hast thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and unto his supplication. O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee today. That thine eyes may be open toward this house, night and day, even toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there, that thou may hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. And hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place. And hear thou in heaven, and dwell at thy dwelling place. And when thou hearest, forgive. Just to make a mention here, it's from this that Islam gets his idea of praying towards Mecca. It was Solomon who was the first one that had this idea of praying toward this particular place. The place that God was going to place his name. Of course, Islam comes much later. And this idea is adopted and brought into the Islamic uh, religion as well. But we carry on. And we read verse 33 of 1 Kings 8. When thy people Israel be smitten down. Notice there's a when here. Before thine enemy. Because they have sinned against thee. And shall turn again to thee. And confess thy name. And pray and make supplication unto this house. Then hear thou in heaven. And forgive the sin of thy people. And bring them again into the land. Which thou gavest unto their fathers. See the hope that Israel had of being brought back if they'd been scattered, which clearly the implication here is they would be. When heaven is shut up, there's no rain because they've sinned against thee. If they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin, when thou afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel, that thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon the land which thou hast given to thy people for an inheritance. And if there be famine in the land, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locusts, or if there be caterpillar, if the enemy besiege them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication soever be made by any man, or by all the people of Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hands toward this house, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and do, and give every man according to his ways, whose heart, to, whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men, that they may fear thee all the days that they live in the land which thou gavest to our fathers. If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, and if thou be angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, so that thou carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy far or near. Yet if they bethink themselves in the land where they are carried captives, and repent and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carry them captives, saying, We have sinned, we have done perversely, we have committed wickedness. And before we just carry on with this prayer, I want to pause and mention these words are quoted by Daniel 
in chapter 9, when Daniel is in Babylon, when Daniel is removed from the land, when all of these things have come upon them, Daniel remembers what Solomon had said. He remembers his prayer and he comes to the Lord and he says, we have sinned, we've done perversely, we've committed wickedness. Lord, we've made the mistakes that we were warned of. And David uses this to plead with God. And he says, and so return unto thee with all thine heart and with all their soul and the land of their enemies which led them away captive and pray unto thee toward their land which thou gavest unto their fathers the city which thou hast chosen and the house which I have built for thy name then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven thy dwelling place and maintain their cause and forgive thy people that have sinned against thee and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against thee and give them compassion before them who carry them captive that they may have compassion on them for they be thy people and thine inheritance which thou broughtest forth out of Egypt from the midst of the furnace of iron that thine eyes may be open unto the supplication of thy servant and unto the supplication of thy people Israel to hearken unto them in all they call for unto thee for thou didst separate them from among all the people of the earth to be thine inheritance as thou spoke by the hand of Moses thy servant when thou broughtest our fathers out of the land of Egypt O Lord God. And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread to heaven. Now, that's a lot of scripture we've just read through there. There's a lot of things in the book of Kings that we could have taken time and uh, gone through in detail. But I just want to really highlight this because people sometimes ask about prayer. I've been asked before, what would you recommend as a good book on prayer? Well, the best book on prayer is the Word of God, the Bible. The Bible teaches us how to pray, how to petition God. And it's interesting that David will base his prayers upon the things that have already been recorded in God's Word. But Solomon here, he appeals to God's covenant, to God's faithfulness, to God's character, to God's sovereignty, and to the obligation that God has agreed himself to take on. Twelve times more than any other chapter in the entire Bible, we find thy people used in the context of this prayer as Solomon says, look, these are your people. This is why you should respond, God. This is why you should answer. The phrase thy servant occurs nine times as well. This is a great portion of scripture 1 kings chapter 8 if you want to learn how to pray how to petition not just wandering and ramblings and so on but to use god's word and god's character and god's attributes and all these things as the basis for our prayer this is how we should pray i just share this with you i think it's such an important lesson to to be learned well as we we move on first kings chapter 10 we find the Queen of Sheba has heard about all of this and she comes to Jerusalem to test Solomon. And she says, It was true the report that I heard in my land of thine acts and thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceeds the fame which I have heard. This reminds us, doesn't it, that our God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think? Well, that's the God we serve. In First Kings chapter 11... We then start to see the the downward spiral. We're told, but King Solomon loved many strange women. Solomon, we're told, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Verse 6 tells us of 1 Kings 11, and Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. After all of that, 
the wisest man that ever lived. You know, don't look at Solomon in a kind of like you fall kind of way. Look at him in a kind of if he can make that mistake, so can we. You know, let's not be haughty but fear and really seek God. And we need to every day remember that we're in a spiritual battle and Satan would love to do with us as he managed to do with Solomon. As a result of this, the Lord declares that he's going to rend the kingdom from Solomon. Just Judah are going to be left for David's posterity and Benjamin with them because they're so closely uh, related geographically as well. But then this brings us to the division of the kingdoms. We're aware that Saul becomes the first king of Israel. First Samuel looked at that. David then is appointed as God's rightful king, the one that God anointed and ordained, the man after God's own heart. And Second Samuel, First Chronicles gives us that. And then Solomon, who we've just been looking at in First Kings and Second Chronicles also. But then we find we get this division around about 985 BC, and First uh, and Second Kings and Second Chronicles deal with all of this now. That we have Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son. Well, Rehoboam is confronted by the leaders of the nation and they say to him, how are you going to treat us? And he says, let me go and think about that. So he goes and asks the old people that have served with David, what should I do? And they say, give them the answer they want. Be lenient with them. Be a good king. And all his young entourage, the people that he's grown up with, say, oh, you know, now be really rough with them, you know. And so he goes back with his answer saying, you know, you think my dad was bad. You wait to see what I'm going to do. And so Israel just say, fine. That's it, we're going. And so it causes division. At the same time, this individual Jeroboam comes back. He'd fled to Egypt. He now comes back. And God speaks to him and anoints and ordains him to become king. It wasn't uh, an act of his own uh, choosing. In a sense, God was the one who allowed Jeroboam to take the, the other tribes, typically the ten tribes that we see. So this division occurs. And we've got the northern kingdom, as you can see from this divide here, all these tribes up here come under the rule and reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, is uh, his full title that we find in scripture used. And the southern kingdom, so Judah, Simeon had kind of got incorporated within the area of Judah anyway, but also the area of Benjamin. Um, so these two tribes really that sit here, that, that uh, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, then has the, the control over. Solomon's son decides he's going to try and go to war, and God says, no, this is of my doing. But then we find Jeroboam's folly. This is the king that's up north now that God had uh, appointed and given him sovereignty over the ten tribes. And yet Jeroboam's fearful that the people are going to go back to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts as they do, Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles and these feasts. And so he sets up two centers, one in Dan, up the north of the country, one in Bethel, and says, why don't you worship here, people? This will be fine. We don't need to go all the way down to Jerusalem. And they become a center for idolatry. We also find that he appoints the lowest of the people, anybody that wants to have a go at it, to be priests. Rather than the Levites that God had ordained. Anybody, if you fancy it, give it a go. He allows them to become priests. So the whole thing becomes such a mess. God sends a prophet to warn Jeroboam. It's a very interesting account in and of itself. I'll let you study and read through as you go through your Bible this year. I hope you are still reading through with us as we're doing this. One of the, the myths that come about is that the ten tribes were lost. And that those ten tribes ended up being scattered around the world. And that they're now in amongst the nations of the world. And so the Danish, well, Dan, that's, that's the, the, where the tribe of Dan went, isn't it? So uh, for Denmark, that's, that's where they ended up. And, and these ideas of how these various tribes and people have suggested which tribe Britain became and so on. It's utter nonsense. See, the godly who are up north travelled to Rehoboam down in the south. 2 Chronicles 11 tells us that. 
And the idol worshippers who are down in the south decide they're going to go up north. So we just have this mixing and mingling of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And all 12 tribes are evident in the post-exile records anyway. Ezra, Nehemiah and so on record it for us. And we have confirmations in the New Testament. Anna, if you remember when Jesus was born and taken to the temple, where she was of the tribe of Asher. Paul, of course we know, was of the tribe of Benjamin. And so on. And actually in Acts 26, 27, he speaks of the 12 tribes as being knowable. James himself writes to the 12 tribes. And in Revelation 7, we have reference and mention of the 12 tribes again. So there is no lost tribes. If you hear that, if you come across it, understand that it's just uh, an idea that came in uh, that has no scriptural backing whatsoever. So, if we look at the history of the kings of Israel, as we said, we have Jeroboam. And then his son becomes king after him, but only for two years. And then we have a chain of dynasty. And this is the repeating pattern with Israel. There was no one dynasty. There was successive different dynasties. Then we have Baasha. And we'll we'll, uh, talk about him next week, because in Chronicles he'll uh, occur in a very interesting uh, situation. Um, For 24 years he reigns. And then his son, Elah, for two years. But then another change of dynasty. But just for one week, this uh, individual, Zimri, uh, reigns. And then uh, Tibni, um, again, uh, comes to the throne. And then Omri, also at the same time. There's a conflict here between these two. Omri's the one that comes to power and uh, supersedes, as it were. For 12 years he's king. And his son becomes one of the most famous kings of Israel, King Ahab. Now Ahab we're familiar with because he's the king that Elijah has all his run-ins with and so on. And for 22 years he's the king. His son Ahaziah becomes king for two years, but then he dies. And then Jehoram, another of his children, also becomes king. And during uh, Elisha's ministry, we find Jehoram is the one that's on the throne. But then because of the wickedness of Ahab, God ends up putting uh, an end to this dynasty as well. And this man, Jehu, is the man who God appoints to put an end to this dynasty, and he does it. And he ends up putting to death a number of the uh, worshippers of Baal. He gets them all together. He makes sure, he asks the question, you know, are there any prophets of the Lord, any people that worship God here? We don't want anybody. This is going to be a celebration just for the prophets of Baal. And everybody's saying, no, no, we, we worship Baal. And he traps them all and then kills them all. God, as a result of his faithfulness in that part, ends up promising him that his, uh, his dynasty would go on to four generations. And that's exactly what we find. Albeit, his fourth uh, generation, as it were, was just six months. Then another change of dynasty, and then another. And we come down here, uh, Menahem, uh, uh, Pekah, and then finally we get to King Hoshea. For nine years reigns, bringing us up to 722 BC, when the Assyrian army invade, and then they take Israel away captive. We'll talk about that in just a moment in a bit more detail. It's such a a terrible mess, really. There's not a single good king amongst them. When we compare it and we look at the history of the kings of Judah, well, Rehoboam, we're aware of, we were just speaking about him a moment ago. His son, Abijam, comes to the throne for three years. Both of these are not good kings. They don't follow after the things of God. But then we come to King Asa. Now, King Asa was a good king, by and large, but he just didn't end well. He made mistakes, and we're going to spend time next week talking about him. But for 41 years he reigns, and then his son Jehoshaphat reigns. And Jehoshaphat, again, is a good king. Jehoshaphat is the one that has this great idea when they're in this battle situation. He sends the musicians first into battle. Maybe it's because they're expendable, I don't know. Um, But the musicians are sent first into battle, and they worship God. And that's how he he goes. And it's a a great account of this individual, a, a good king of Israel. 
But then we find his son Jehoram, and then we go down, Ahaziah, and then only for one year. And then we have a queen uh, within the kings of Judah, which doesn't quite, even, anyway. Um, we have Queen Athaliah. She's not a good queen at all. And she ends up trying to put to death all of the descendants of Ahaziah, and there's just one individual that escapes. You know, we talked early on about the way Satan was trying to stop God's plan, trying to stop the Messiah coming. And God had already promised that the Messiah would come through the family of David. We've seen that already. Well, this would have been kind of potentially game over. But here, the Lord allows Jehoash as just eight years old to escape. Well, he escapes when he's a child, and when he's eight, then he then is put on the throne. Uh, and by and large, he's a good king. Uh, Joash also, we find, uh, sometimes these names are spelled slightly differently in different uh, chapters of Scripture, so you have to kind of beware of that. But then Amaziah, and then we get to Uzziah, or Azariah, we find in the text. But um, this is the king when Isaiah starts his ministry. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he gets this great vision of God in heaven. Well, that's this king, that Isaiah is ministering at the tail end of his reign, right at the end. Um, Hosea and Amos also at the same time as you come over this side we see that then Jotham comes to the throne um, Ahaz and then Hezekiah one of the greatest kings other than David uh, that Israel had Um, and again during this time Micah, Hosea and Isaiah are prophets prophesying to the nation and it's during the reign of Hezekiah that the Assyrians come up and Hezekiah puts his trust in God and God delivers Judah out of the hands of the Assyrians we'll talk a bit more next week about that Um, so the northern kingdom go into captivity and so just the southern kingdom of Judah are left now but then Hezekiah you remember the situation that he's sick and he's about to die and he pleads with God and God adds 15 years to his life and as a result the sundial goes back and those things well during those 15 years Hezekiah has a son and that son was Manasseh who became the most evil the most wicked king that Israel had but he did repent at the end of his life he was taken uh, captive to Babylon but then he's later released uh, as he repented and he realized the error of his ways his son carries on the same just as he'd done for only for two years though but then his grandson no doubt seeing his granddad change that his granddad had been this horrible wicked king but at the end of his life and probably the part that Josiah would have remembered Manasseh starts to serve God and that has a profound effect on this young king and he becomes a great king for Israel another one of the the real kind of high spots as it were um, during this time Zephaniah a prophet during this time and Jeremiah and so we get to this final run in Jehoaz Jehoiakim uh, whose name is changed uh, in the text you see uh, Jehoiachin these names get very similar it's a bit confusing um, but then Zedekiah becomes the last king and he's the king that finally rebels against uh, Nebuchadnezzar and then that's it end of uh, we find three sieges occur um, during this time the first one starting in 606 and the final siege uh, in 587 when Jerusalem is finally fallen. Okay, just a couple of things to mention. And uh, we are, I know we haven't touched two kings yet, but we'll just briefly do so in a moment because we just covered all the history, in a sense, looking at those things there. Elijah. Now this again during 1 Kings. Elijah is one of those amazing characters. He just walks onto the pages of Scripture. In, in the text we have Elijah the Tishbite. No history, no background, nothing about him. This individual walks onto the pages of scripture and changes a nation. Just one person. And I'm always amazed at this, that what God can do through the life of somebody that's yielded to him. And you think, what about me? What about you? You know, we would think maybe, you know, God will use someone else. 
I, I'm not good enough. Elijah, just one man with a heart for God, and God changes a nation. As so he ministers to the northern kingdom, as we see there on the, the slide, that the New Testament speaks more about him than any other Old Testament prophet. He actually appears twice in the New Testament, certainly the transfiguration we're familiar with, seemingly one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, and possibly, we talked previously, maybe also at the resurrection, one of the two men that were at the tomb, and at the ascension, one of the two men that are there. So there's possibly four uh, actual personal appearances we find in the New Testament. There's eight major miracles that he does. One of the key ones is stopping the rain for three and a half years, And we have this incredible confrontation on Mount Carmel. And then finally, Elijah is raptured and taken to heaven. This confrontation on Mount Carmel, well, we read, Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? How how long do you kind of waver between these two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. You know, it's such a simple thing, you know. If God is really God, why don't you serve him with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength? Well, he challenges the prophets of Baal to this match and he says, look, you offer an an offering to your God. And they go through this, they um, cut themselves and they go from morning till evening and of course their God doesn't answer. And Elijah starts mocking, he says, well, maybe he's in the bathroom, maybe he can't hear you. But then Elijah goes to his offering. This offering, this burnt offering, everything twisted, all wrong as it should be. And then he pours water over it three times. This isn't going to catch fire now. But then all of a sudden, God sends fire from heaven and consumes this offering. As a result, 450 prophets of Baal are also then put to death as a result. Incredible situation. Queen Jezebel is at this time as well, a part of the situation. She's outraged with what Elijah's done. She was uh, the daughter the king of Sidonians, um, and she's the wife of Ahab. And you, you are aware even today the name Jezebel. I mean, you don't know many Jezebel, do you? Many girls called Jezebel. Uh, it's synonymous with cruelty and uh, you know, so on. It's not a nice name in that sense. Um, there's a situation with this individual Naboth who has a vineyard next to the palace, and Ahab looks out the king and says, I want that. And he's all upset and grumpy. You know, ladies, you might know what it's like to have a grumpy husband sometimes. You know, and he's, he's there and she says, what's the matter, darling? And he says, well, I want that vineyard, but I can't have it and Naboth won't give it to me. And so she says, leave it with me. And what she does, she goes and makes false accusations again. She gets, him, she gets people to say that he's um, blasphemed and so on, which is crazy in the context anyway. But, um, and as a result of that, she forcibly takes his land and he's put to death. And of course, we see a very similar thing that occurred with the Catholic Church during the Inquisition. And it's actually in the fourth letter to the churches in Revelation, the church of Thyatira, Thyatira, that we have this Jezebel mentioned there. And we see the same spirit being adopted through the Catholic Church. These Inquisitions, people falsely accused, their land being taken, them being put to death, and so on. Well, just a very cursory view of uh, Two Kings. We've already looked at a lot of these things. We looked at that kind of breakdown earlier of how the chapters pan out through the book. Elisha is the kind of the major prophet that we see. He's effectively Elijah's disciple. Now, you remember we said that Elijah did eight specific miracles and then he was raptured. Well, Elijah had said... I should have mentioned, we said earlier, that Elijah is prophesied to return. But Elijah had said that if Elisha saw him when he was taken, he'd receive a double portion. And that's what what he'd requested. And so, 
Elisha follows faithfully all the way and does receive this anointing. And we find in the text of scripture, Elisha does 16 specific miracles, exactly in fulfillment of that promise that had been given him. Elisha, again, a wonderful prophet, number of things you could uh, talk about. One of them is a situation with Nahum, uh, Nahum and this leper, a gentle leper, just like you and I, riddled with sin in a sense. And this is in 2 Kings chapter 5. He was proud and unwilling to submit to God. Elisha had said, go and dip yourself in the Jordan seven times. He said, to Jordan, that's a filthy river. I've got much nicer rivers back home. And he doesn't want to do it. He's so proud. But eventually his men convince him. He humbles himself. And if you like, he's baptized. He dies to self. He comes to that place in his life where he realizes, you know, I've got nothing left to lose. And then he's raised effectively to new life. He comes up out of the water and his skin is clean and pure again. So he's now, as it were, in the world, but not of it. He realizes that the religion that his master back in Syria had was not of God. And he doesn't want to go back into that and not retain this relationship that he's now found with the God of Israel. You see, he's come to the place where we should come, where our home is no longer in this world. And what he actually does, he takes some of the soil back with him so that when he's praying, he would pray on that soil. As if, you know, I can't be in Israel because my job requires that I go and do this, but I'm never going to forget that this is my home, that God is my God. And in a sense, it's a great picture of us that even though we end up having to go out into the world so often, we face daily challenges before unbelieving Gentiles, just as Naaman would go back to. We mustn't give in to compromise either. A great picture. Well, we sung a song this morning, God of Angel Armies. And it's taken from this portion of scripture in Second Kings, where the king of Syria warred against Israel. He took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a camp shall my place be. So he's saying, this is where he's going to set up his camp. The problem is, as we read, the man of God, Elisha this is, sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there not once or twice. In other words, this happened repeatedly. That Syria are on their military exercises and everywhere they go, somehow the king of Israel finds out about it. So, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing and he called his servants and said unto them, Will you show me which of us is for the king of Israel? He's saying there's got to be a mole. Somebody in the camp is telling what's going on. Well, his servants have obviously get to hear about this and they say, No, my lord, O king, but it's Elisha the prophet that's in Israel. He's telling the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. Well, the king's obviously very troubled by this, and he descends to go out after him. He says, go and spy where he is that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, behold, he's in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant... If the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. Then his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? Well, that was, you know, you look at the physical things, as we so often do in our lives. There was a very real danger. What are we going to do? His servant says to Elisha. <laughs> well, then Elisha responds and says, Don't worry. They that be with us are more than they that be with them. And you can imagine Elisha's servant looking around thinking, you've lost it, this is crazy. But no, Elisha could see something that a servant couldn't see. Elisha was looking with spiritual eyes. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, 
open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. You see, we worship the God of angel armies. Wherever we go, before, behind, he is with us. God never leaves us or forsakes us. That's the God we serve. We should have great confidence as we step out into this world, as we go through our lives, as we look to opportunities to witness. Well, 2 Kings 17 starts to talk about the fall of of Israel. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, and they departed not from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. Now the Assyrians were particularly cruel. And the way that they treated people, typically they would um, put hooks through your noses and attach you to the person in front of you and they drag you along. Uh, you couldn't escape. It was a horrible, barbaric way of uh, doing things. But this is what they did. And this occurs about 722 that Israel is captured. Their te- people are taken away. The king of Assyria then decides he's going to fill the land with migrants, the people that have come from other places that he's conquered. And they start to become overrun with lions. It's an incredible situation. So they realize that the people of the land don't know the custom of the God of the land. So they go and get one of the Jewish priests, the Israeli priests, and quite what caliber this priest was, we don't know. But he's sent back to teach the customs to these people that are now inhabiting the land. This becomes the Samaritans that we hear of. And they form a hybrid religion, as it were. And of course, subsequently they become rejected by the Jews. That makes sense when we get to the New Testament, why the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. We read, in uh, 2 Kings 17.24 And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kuthath and from Ava and from Hamath and from Seravaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel and they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which slew some of them. Wherefore they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he sent lions among them, and said, Behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. So this problem occurs. Well, if you go up to the British Museum in London, you'll find that if you go to the room where they've got all the Assyrian reliefs and everything else, you'll find there a number of these big reliefs where you've got these pictures of these lions and these chariots, these Assyrian soldiers and loads of lions. It's, it's amazing when you look. See a lion there with a spear, another one there, and there's a horse chasing it. Um, and there again, a lion. And that's got one, two, three, four, five arrows in that one. I think they were making sure they, they finished him off. Um, another one there, another one there. And this is a whole wall full of these things, and it's, it's very tall as well. The, the note on the wall says this. Lion hunting in Assyria was the sport of kings. The sculptures in this room, carved about 645 to 635 BC, which fits perfectly in our time frame, mostly show the sporting exploits of the last great Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. Uh, the hunt scenes full of tension, realism, rank among the finest achievements in Assyrian art. And of course they're saying that this was just what the kings did. They like to go out and they hunt a little lion here and there. Now if you look at these reliefs, I cannot come to that conclusion. They weren't hunting lions, they were invaded by a complete pest of lions. And you know, when you've got lions that are actually attacking the back of your chariot, that's gone beyond just hunting. 
And, uh, you know, this fits so perfectly with what we read in Scripture. Um, that I think what we see there, what the Assyrians were recording, was this very real event as mentioned in Scripture. So, I'll leave that with you. If you get to go to the British Museum, you can go and have a look at those things for yourself. Just to draw this to a close then, Josiah, this great king toward the end of his, uh, Judah's um, uh, time in the land, um, he dies in a battle against Pharaoh Necho. We'll talk about that next week. Then his son Jehoaz reigns for just three months. He's taken to Egypt by Pharaoh Necho. And then another one of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim, reigns for 11 years. It's in the third year of his reign that Nebuchadnezzar comes up and uh, lays siege. Um, and then Jehoiachin, is placed on the throne, or also Jeconiah, and he's the individual, you may have heard about this blood curse, Jeremiah 22 talks of this, uh, that none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne. And that seems to be a problem regarding the future Messiah. Of course, God deals with that, and we'll talk about that again some other time. But then as a result of this, Zedekiah then, a third son of Josiah, so actually we have three sons of Josiah all end up sitting on the throne at different times. He's the final king that reigns up until 587 BC. Now just another, just a a quick thing. In 2 Kings 24 it says, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign. Okay. Now if we look at the uh, similar verse in Chronicles, it says Jehoiachin was eight years old when he began to reign. So we have a problem. This is one of those apparent contradictions. Well, Kyle and Dillich say Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he ascended the throne. The eight years of Chronicles are a slip of the pen. What they're saying is there's an error in the Bible. Okay. Sorry, Kyle and Dillich, I disagree with you. Adam Clark says Jehoiachin was 18 years old. He's called Jeconiah and so on. Um, he's said to be only 8 years old of age. Um, but this must be a mistake, he says. For we find that having uh, reigned only 3 months, he was carried to, captured to Babylon. And there he had wives. And it was very improbable that a child between 8 and 9 years of age could have had wives. And of such a tender age, it can scarcely be said that as a king he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so he again reiterates, says, the place in Chronicles must be corrupted. So... We've got a mistake in the Bible. We've got corruption in the Bible, apparently. Jameson, Fawcett and Brown, their commentary. 18 years old when he began to reign at the age of eight. His father took him into partnership in the government. He began to reign alone at 18. So this is one proposed resolution to this. At least I respect Jameson, Fawcett and Brown for not saying there's an error in the Bible. And they're saying that he became kind of partly king, but not fully king when he was eight. So that's what they're suggesting, a co-regency. Well... There is no problem with the text. Okay, first of all, what do we know? Well, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he came uh, to be king of Judah. That's what we're told in Kings. No problem with that. He reigned three, three months and ten days. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes him captive to Babylon. He's the first king of Judah to come to the throne as a vassal king. So under the um, authority of another king. So, again, we look at this verse in Chronicles, which is the one that seems to be the problem. Jehoiakim was eight years old when he became to reign. Well, if you look at the word that's translated old, the Hebrew is ben, or bain as it's pronounced. It literally means a son. The actual options you're given are of literal or figurative relationship, including grandson, subject, nation. So we could lit- legitimately translate it, Jehoiakim was eight years a son when he began to reign. Or we could say... Jehoiachin was eight years subject when he began to reign. And that makes a lot more sense. Because if we look at the chronology of all of this, we find that we've got this uh, time for Jehoiakim. 
Okay, it's in his third year that Nebuchadnezzar comes to the throne. We find that for three years he serves Nebuchadnezzar, and then for five years he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, and then Jehoiachin, the subject of our conversation here, comes to the throne. When he comes to the throne, he'd been eight years subject. The nation had been eight years subject to the king of Babylon. There is no contradiction. We just need to understand what the text is saying. When we find an error in the Bible, rejoice. There's always something to, to, to find. And every time people say there's a contradiction, there's a problem. Actually, if you dig a bit deeper, you find there's a revelation there. So, okay. We're done. I want to share just one thing with you before we close. Second Kings chapter 7, verses 3 to 9. There were four lepers, or leprous men, at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here still, we die also. Now therefore come, let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. If they kill us, we're going to die anyway. So there's this siege, the Syrians have come up against the land. They're saying if we're in the city, we're going to die because there's a famine. There's no food getting in or out. If we stay here, we're going to die. Let's just go to the Syrians. Let's throw ourselves on their mercy and see what happens. And they rose up in the twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. So the Syrians are terrified. They flee, leaving everything. We're told, Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it. And came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. They're probably eating as they're going. They're absolutely full up. They've got so much gold and all the stuff that's been left there. But then they said to one another, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. People, we have got something that is so utterly priceless with the word of God. We have got this incredible abundance. Everywhere we look around us, there's a famine. There's a famine for any resemblance of peace. There's a famine for understanding truth. There's a famine of the word of God itself. And we've, sitting here, as it were, we were lepers ourselves once. And we've got this. But if we just sit here and keep it to ourselves, we're just like those lepers, coming week after week getting a little bit more gold and silver and these lovely things and taking it back and putting it in our tent, eating till we're full. But what are we doing with it? Are we going to the king's household and saying, do you know the Syrians have fled? There's abundance. You don't need to be in famine anymore. You know, we've got people in churches in this area and around this country that know nothing of the word of God. Now, I'm not going and asking you to say, bring them all here. Happy if you do. But I'm not asking you to do that. But I'm saying get into conversations, particularly with the Christians, with people that go to church. Talk to them about God's word. Share with them some of the things that we're discovering from God's word. When somebody says to you, oh, there was, you know, there's a few problems in the Bible. Say, no, there's not. The reason I put some of those things in is so that we have this confidence in God's word. We don't need to be ashamed or afraid. But we need to get out there. We need to share. We've got this abundance 
And we don't do well if we just keep it to ourselves. Paul said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead that is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. That's when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts, they shall heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall be turned and turn their ears away from the truth and shall be turned to fables. You know, people, the time has come. That's exactly what's happening out there. And we have got this feast. We need to go and share it. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for your word again. We thank you for this rich feast that you have given us. And we thank you for the lessons that we can learn from these kings also. Father, we thank you that we see good kings that served you, that brought the hearts of their nation back to you. We thank you for people like Elijah, just an individual, one man on his own, that brought the nation back to you. Oh, Father, what would happen if we learned to pray? Teach us to pray, Father, as Solomon prayed, appealing to your great mercy, your character, your faithfulness. Lord, help us to pray knowing that you're a God who is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that, Lord, you've called us to be salt and light in this world. Lord, use us, we pray. Father, as Isaiah, in the days following the death of King Isaiah, was caught up and saw that vision, And Lord, he heard that voice, whom shall I send? And Lord, he said, Lord, send me. Lord, as a fellowship, send us. As an individual, send me. If you can pray this morning, pray, Lord, send me. Lord, that this harvest will be reaped and gathered into your barn before the coming of the day of the Lord. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.